Our message this morning is called Fury. What is today? September 1st, 2013. Fury. Turn with me to John 3. We're going to start in the third verse. I'm going to ask you to hang on for the ride today. If I offend you early, hang in there. I might be able to increase that as we go. Don't give up on me too soon. As David said, yet will I be even more undignified than this. In the third chapter of John, in the third verse, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Let me tell you that there is a spiritual realm that the lost cannot see, and very few of the saved take time to see it. Jesus did not say that if you were born again, you would certainly see God. He said if you were pure in heart, you would see God. He didn't say if you were born again, you would understand all spiritual things. He said those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they would be filled. If you're born again in this place today, I want to tell you that the seen world, that which is visible, that which is tangible, owes its very existence to an unseen world. It is no less real. If you think that things that are not seen are not real, stick your finger in the electrical outlet and see how real electricity is. You can't see it. It's a continuous flow of electrons. You can feel it. You may not be able to see wind, but you can absolutely feel it. In the spiritual realms, there are things that we can see if God opens our eyes and things we can feel if we live and breathe and move in His Spirit. 2 Kings 6 and the 17th verse, a man named Elisha is speaking with his servant. The servant is scared because Aram has surrounded him, the armies of Aram. Elijah prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Somebody say, they were already there. Come on now, they were already there. Elijah did not pray for the armies of heaven to show up in their day of trouble. They were already there. What Elijah prayed was that his servant's eyes would see what was already there. I'm telling you, they are already here. We need eyes that can see into the Spirit. And if the armies of heaven are here, then you need to know that the enemy has assignments as well. I love the little dialogue in the book of Esther. Esther is talking to her wise uncle Mordecai. It reminds me so much of the church and the lesson of Israel, our older brother. The death order has already been issued. The decree has already gone out. Haman has already issued a decree to destroy the Jews. But Esther sits and twiddles her thumbs and wonders whether today is the day to act as if her destruction is not already planned by the enemy. I'm here to tell you today that Jesus told us in John 10, the thief, the devil, he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He had that plan for you before you were born. And the living God had a different plan for you before you were born. There is an unseen world that we owe our very existence to. The book of Hebrews says 
blatantly that what is now created was made from what could not be seen. It says that in Hebrews 11.3. In the ninth chapter of Mark, forgive me in the sound booth, it may be difficult to keep up with me today. In the ninth chapter of Mark, in the second verse, we see that it had been six days. And Jesus took his disciples up onto a mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. Look at the next verse. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Next verse. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. There are two ways you could read this. You could read that they suddenly arrived on the scene, but it doesn't say they arrived. It says they appeared. Another way to say that is they became visible. If Jesus does not change, if he's not like a shifting shadow, if he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, is he less bright now than he was then? Are his clothes less bright now than they were then? How about the day before? See, Jesus didn't change on the mountain. The appearance that they could see changed. He had promised them that they would see into the kingdom of God. And they were seeing something that was hidden to the world. Today, I want to talk to you about the enemy's battle plan. I want to talk to you about the landscape of the battle. I want to teach you where our vulnerabilities are. And more than that, the direction of the attack of the enemy. And then how we succeed. How sad it is that we see people born again by the tens of thousands. But like soldiers, simply marched into the front of the battle without training. How awful would that be? What if we conscripted an army from a preschool? And we took those preschoolers and we said, Today, you will take on Russia's finest. How many of you in your heart would cry out, That's wrong? How wrong is it then? That we are facing battles in an unseen world and we have an untrained, apathetic church. The word of the living God is sharper than any double-edged sword. But if I take John 3.16 away from you, if I took the 27 books of the New Testament away from you, would you even have five stones in your pouch? See, the church has to arise. There is a percentage of people in here that will hear a message and something inside you will dial in. Something inside you will begin to notice what's going on around us that the rest of the world doesn't see. Every day you pick up the newspaper, is it good news or bad news? It's bad news. They're telling us right now that there's going to be a war with Syria. Has anybody stopped to see what Bible prophecy said about Syria? How many of you have been searching your Bibles? See, we listen to what the newspaper says is going to happen, but we have not looked at what the Word says is going to happen. We wait for some exalted teacher to tell us. If the kingdom of God is in you, then the Word of God should be dwelling in you. And if the Word of God is dwelling in you, then the mighty counselor that is the Holy Ghost should be illuminating to you not just the things that are happening, but the things that will happen. He should give you a battle plan. Your family should have a battle plan. In my house, the smallest child knows what we were put on the earth to do. 
When we walk in and out of our door, we remind each other. Today, we go out to excite people about the kingdom of God, to warn them about the seriousness of this call. When we come in at the end of the day, we pray together and we recharge and we ask God to make our home a sanctuary so that we can continue the fight. It's time for the church of God to become focused. Ephesians 6 and the 12th verse teaches us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Where at? Come on, look at your neighbor and say, the White House is not our problem. Come on, if you're a Democrat, you ought to take some delight in that. Look at them and say, the White House is not our problem. Now, next year, for I guess it'd have to be three years from now, if we got a Republican in the office, we're going to turn Republicans to Democrats and say the White House is not our problem. These men are but puppets on a string. The heavenly realms are calling the shots, and the men on the earth are carrying them out. Some things have been determined by the living God, but who carries out what is determined, that's been left very much up to you. How many of you love the song, The Enemy Has Been Defeated? Oh, man, I love it. What a testimony. The enemy has been defeated. There is a subtle danger in that song, though. Are you telling me that we are not battling the enemy yet to this day? Why is he defeated? How is he defeated? Where is he defeated? See, the church has songs just like this, and I love that one. Oh, the enemy is defeated. Well, good, then we must not be at war. If you had been in my house this week, we're very much at war. We war with sickness. We war with infirmity. We war with deception. We war with addiction. We war with everything that you war with. So how is the enemy defeated? Because the living God has pronounced judgment, and it is up to us to carry out that judgment. Saying the enemy has been defeated is a prediction based on the knowledge of the Word of God, but you must carry out that prediction. We don't always see in the heavenly realms. But the word of God teaches us how to act even when we don't know what we're fighting or seeing. Every Sunday morning, every single one, Brookie, I get up and I have a unique balancing act. Were it not for superior athletic ability and cat-like reflexes, I couldn't do it. Thank you. That was meant to be humorous. Only the elder knows me. Surrounding my bed is an obstacle course, laden with a weenie dog, occasionally things that weenie dogs leave lying on your floor, and children that cried to sleep in our room the night before. And it's dark, and it's hard not to step on my son. This one gets right at the foot of my bed. Between me and the coffee pot, the thing that I desire the most at 4 a.m. Were it not for a little Bible app on my phone that is a light unto my feet, I could not navigate that maze even to make it out of the room. There are things that are real, that are precious to me, that I cannot see. But the light of God's word gives me a faint glimpse. Amen, Elvira. Amen. 
I need to talk to you about the fury of the enemy. If you understand the enemy and you understand his designs, it is a sobering thing. We dance around and act like the devil is this horned animal with a pitchfork in his hand ruling hell. Why? Because Bugs Bunny or Roadrunner or some ridiculous cartoon portrayed him that way. The Bible does not portray him that way. Turn with me to Revelation 12. You'll be in the 10th verse. This is one of those fantastic scriptures that people love to quote. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury. Come on, say filled. Filled. We are to be filled with the Holy Ghost, but the devil is filled with something else. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. You know one of the more dangerous things in the prison system? A man with a life sentence. You know why? What else are you going to do to him? Do you know why we have TV in jail? Why we have air conditioning in jail? You think it's the American Civil Liberties Union, and don't begin to get me started on that. That's not why it exists. Cable television exists in jail so that you still have something to take away from a man who knows his time is short. If there is no hope, if there is nothing left, what's to restrain him? Say, well, maybe solitary. You know, there's a man in the U.S. prison system that has been in solitary confinement for 29 years. At some point, what's left to punish you? I want you to understand that a wicked person, if you've already punished him to the fullest extent, you are going to punish him because you live in a state where they have revoked the death penalty, although it is a biblical mandate. You live in a state where they've revoked it. What is left to punish him? How many guards can he kill? How many fellow prisoners can he kill? Well, one side is who cares? They're prisoners. Jesus cares. The devil knows his time is short. What is left to restrain him? He is full of fury. Oh, saints, I heard an interview this week. I was so mad. I was mad. Is that fair enough? We don't need any more descriptors than that. An atheist is interviewing a woman who is representing Christianity, and he says, is God always good? She said, well, yes, he is. Is the devil always bad? Well, yes, he is. We're all in agreement so far, yeah? yeah? How about God's will? Is it always done? She said, yes, it is. I thought, oh, no, woman, what are you doing? He said, then, 
it must be God's will that babies are being aborted. It must be God's will that people are dying in Sudan, that people are freezing to death in countries around the world. You must have a pretty wicked God, he said to her. And she had no reply. When we say God's will is always done, and yet it is obviously not, understand you are blaming the divine for what you are failing to do. It's the same thing when we say some place is God forsaken, as if he didn't die to pour out salvation on it. It's not God forsaken. It's church neglected. See, and this is the problem. We say the enemy has been defeated and the war is raging around us. I notice that as the war gets thick, the injury reserve list gets long. Have you ever noticed that when things are difficult, prayer meetings are not as attended? When things get difficult, church is not as well attended? I mean, let it rain, and some percentage of the people do not show up. Because this was supposed to be a big bless me gathering, wasn't it? I mean... It was this or Oprah's book club, either one's about equally edifying. The kingdom of God is at war. You serve a God who is at war. You are in a church who is at war, and you are supposed to be Christians who are at war. And if you're not at war, then who gave you the authority to make a peace treaty? Who gave you the authority to concede this world to the devil when the Bible declares that Jesus Christ came to destroy the devil's work. I refuse to make a peace treaty. We know that he is filled with fury. Look at the 17th verse. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. I love when the Bible interprets itself. Those who obey God's command and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who is the dragon at war with? Those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Those who obey the commands. So if you're not at war, maybe it's because you haven't held to the testimony. Maybe it's because you've given up the commands. But we serve a holy God who is leading a holy people. And we can sing the song, the enemy has been defeated, but he's only defeated in the life of the man who will not relinquish his testimony, who will not be seduced by this world, but instead will be led by the Spirit of God and obey the commands of God. Too long we've been taught that we're just old sinners. Too long have we stood by and said, if God wants it done, he'll do it himself. You are the body of Christ, and it is time for our wake-up call. The hour is getting late. The light is even dimming, and yet the church stays asleep. We cannot, saints. Look at Daniel 11. Say there, when you're there, it'll be Daniel 11. In the 11th chapter of Daniel, which I'm still working to get to. Picking up in the 29th verse. 
At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Somebody say, lose heart. Do you want to be the one who loses heart? This is a Bible prophecy that scholars universally apply to the Antichrist. Are you happy to hear that in a battle he may lose heart? I'm happy to hear that. Are you happy, Mario? Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Who will the Antichrist favor? Those who forsake the covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will resist him firmly. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. You know, depending on who you are, when you read a scripture like this, you go, wow, we're going to be captured, burned, and plundered. And that might even scare you, particularly in a day where our theology makes no room for Christians suffering. We're pretty sure it's got to be the Jews. It could be anybody else, but it definitely can't be us because the gospel we accepted was one that makes us rich, fat, and ignorant. But the gospel of the Bible says if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to deny yourself. You're not going to take up his cross. You're going to take up your cross daily. So when you hear a scripture like this, you could shake in your boots and go, wow, we're going to be captured, plundered, burned. Or you might have caught the first part. There are battles in which the enemy loses heart. Oh, man. You put us against somebody who is superior in some way. He's stronger in some way. But you know any minute now he might quit. What does that tell you all you have to do? Endure. All I have to do is hang in there. He will fall eventually. What do you think David thought when he's facing Goliath? It's a neat little Bible story, except that it was real men. Stand up, Dylan. Come here. Stand up, Cody. These proportions are not as gross as the actual... Come stand on the stage. These proportions are not as gross as the truth. Dylan, how much would you like to fight with Cody? Not much. But what if he knows... Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but if I can just hang in there, I have seen in Cody's character, he will lose heart. Well, that's a whole different ball game. Maybe that's why little David or little Dylan knew he had to pick up five rocks. First one might not get him, but I got four more for you. Why five? Well, they say it's, y'all can sit down. They say it's because Goliath, had four brothers. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'd have picked up as many rocks as it would take, and I didn't know how many it was going to take, so it'd be as many as I could carry. The devil is filled with fury. 
He's not interested in making peace with you. He's interested in deceiving you. He's interested in enslaving you. He's interested in publicly embarrassing you. There is no way out of this battle. You either submit to him and you become his puppet and hide in a church while being his puppet, or you stand up and declare war. And those who stand up and declare war, he vents his fury on. So you're going to see us from time to time wobble. You're going to see us from time to time bleed a little bit. What you will never see is us lose heart. Because my king says if I can stand one more day. If I can stand one more day. If I can stand one more day. Today is crucifixion. But tomorrow is resurrection. I don't know how long it's going to go. But I know how long I am prepared to stand. Church, we need some Holy Ghost grit. I've been saying it for months because I see so little of it around us. If a broken eyelash keeps you out of church, you need to go examine your salvation again. I have noticed something. Those who are sick are always sick and will always be sick. If you believe Jesus is a healing God, then drag your sickness into his presence. Those who are tired and depressed are always tired and depressed. Drag it into the presence of God. Get around those who are stronger than you. Be vulnerable in his presence and stand up and say, I need help. If you believe he's a good God, he will meet you in that. You have to wonder how much we love our weaknesses when we nurse them and announce them on Facebook. And it's the first thing we say to everyone we meet. It's as if we are testifying about the greatness of the satanic power that has enslaved us. But if you believed you were actually at war, you know what soldiers do not do? Soldiers do not sit in the trenches and say, my God, did you see the size of that gun that guy has? Did you see? He killed four of my friends and he shot me here, here, and here. I'm so scared. You'd shoot a soldier who stood next to you and said that. You'd consider him a treasonous traitor. Somewhere in the church, saints, we have to learn to govern our thoughts, govern our speech, and consider ourselves following a God who has declared war on a satanic, rebellious power who is bent on destroying you. A part of a church who has declared war upon that satanic power and a member of a household that is woken up and declared war. Isaiah 14 is everybody's favorite scripture. They think it actually names the devil. Turn with me to Isaiah 14. It may not be everybody's favorite scripture. It's their favorite scripture about the devil. I'm not even sure it speaks of the devil. It's addressed to the king of Babylon. But I'll humor you and the rest of the world for a little while. Let us look at what it says. It's a prophecy. In Isaiah 14, starting in verse 3. On the day the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Oh, who in here has played a game of basketball in your life? Raise your hand. You know, half the fun of basketball on the street anyway is talking smack. <laughs> right? Like, you may not be good at anything except the pregame smack talk. But you can at least front a good game, right? Like, dude, you don't even want to get on the court with me. I mean, 
I'm going to stuff every shot. I'm going to box you out. You're going to look like a fool. You, you might as well just step off. Spence, you talk some smack on the basketball court, don't you? All big white guys talk smack on the basketball court. Y'all relax. It's okay. We can talk about white folks and black folks. That's what we are. And those of you that are somewhere in between, praise God, he made you beautiful. I love you Hispanic people. Check this out. He said, take up this taunt. The living God expects you to be able to taunt the enemy. Do you know why you taunt the enemy? Because you are absolutely confident of the outcome. Do you know why we sing the song, The Enemy Has Been Defeated Here? We're taunting him. We are saying that we believe, even though we're in the midst of a battle, standing toe-to-toe, taking shots in the face, that he's about to fall because the living God has weighed him and measured him and found out that he loses heart. But we don't have to. You do need to know something, though. That scripture in Daniel, it didn't just say that the Antichrist lost heart. It said that the people were captured and plundered. It spoke of people violating the covenant. It spoke of people turning back. Apparently, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil are in a struggle that is a kind of tug and war. You might say, who wants it most? I've been in places where it's nothing for a man to fast 40 days. I've been in places where if a guy fasts two weeks, he doesn't know whether he's going to eat at the end of it. I noticed this trend in the American church. It's laughable. We're going to do Daniel's fast, 21 days, and then you find out what they mean is they're fasting from grape juice or they're fasting from Twinkies or they're fasting from an item. Can I tell you that's not Daniel's fast? But we do that. Why, Why not take Moses' fast? He didn't eat or drink for 40 days. Of course, he was in the presence of God. You know, I always made fun of the Muslims because their fast at Ramadan is not really a fast. It's a fast during the daylight hours. So they, fa- they say they fast for an entire month, but the truth is they want credit for fasting for an entire month while they only fast for portions of the day until the church started doing it in recent times. You know, and I'm like, really? Who wants this the worst? Now, if all this talk of fasting is making you nervous... Relax, and if you girls are struggling with anorexia, forget about it. Hear this. God's not interested in your hunger strike. Not at all. The whole point of fasting was repentance. The whole point was loosing someone else's chains of injustice by denying yourself to give to them. Not eating has almost nothing to do with it. It just so happens that when you stop feeding your face, you have a chance to start thinking about other people. In this prophecy in Isaiah, we hear something. We hear a taunt. How the oppressor has come to an end. How his fury has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down the peoples with unceasing blows. And in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. Is the devil relentless? Oh, man. All The lands are at rest and at peace. 
they break into singing. Even the pine trees and the cedars of Lebanon exalt over you and say, now that you have been laid low, no woodman comes to cut us down. The grave below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you, all those who were leaders in the world. It makes them rise from their thrones, all those who were kings over nations. They will all respond. They will say to you, you have become weak as we are. You have become like us. What is the taunt to the king of Babylon? You've been brought down to size. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you and worms, worms cover you. Here's the verse everybody thinks is Satan. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, the depths of the pit. Certainly, in Isaiah's day, Satan had not been reduced to a mere man. I mean, after all, he did a pretty good job of kicking us around before we got born again, didn't he? I've always attributed this to the man that it's written about, the king of Babylon. But for a moment, let's humor the Bible scholars. How did it identify him? As one who was filled with fury and had relentless aggression for the nations. And we say he's cast down. Revelation 12 says he's cast down. Of course, in being cast down, it says he was enraged against all who keep the covenant. And he went out to make war against them. What does that tell us about the enemy? He's pretty committed, isn't he? You know, that's an old story that preachers have told for years. Said they had an old lady in their church sweet woman who couldn't say anything negative about anybody. Said, how about the devil? Miss Betty, can you say something ugly about the devil? She goes, he's always busy. It's true, isn't it? But the church is not always busy. We're not always sober, not always vigilant. We can teach on spiritual warfare and people get excited for it. Let me ask you something. If a church had 2,000 people, is that a good thing? Let's, let's for argument's sake say it is. How many would be in the choir in a church of 2,000? Matt says 40. Lady in the back said 50. I like big choirs. Let's say, let's say 200. Is 200 okay? 10% choir attendance. Good choir, isn't it? 200 people. Man, what could we do with 200 people? We'd even get robes. What if of the 200 people who were in choir, only 20 people showed up for choir practice? How sad would that be, huh? But come on now, it's 1% of the whole church. You know, if 20 people showed up for choir practice, the senior pastor would fire the choir director. Of course, if 20 people showed up for the prayer meeting, he'd call it a success. What's wrong with us? We act like this battle is going to be won with social programs. 
like it's going to be one with platitudes and bumper stickers and Christian t-shirts. If we're battling in an unseen world, why are there so few that commit to seriously pray? Why are there so few that can pray for an hour without becoming so distracted that they start conversations and wander off? Why is that? Because we're emaciated. We're starving inside. We've declared victory. And we're standing on the sidelines of the battle. Guys, the devil is pretty committed to his task. He's got more than an hour commitment. He's got more than a week commitment. He doesn't do spiritual emphasis weeks. He's pretty committed to your full-time destruction. Has anybody felt any of that fury? I don't want to give him praise, but it's true, isn't it? I got a few scars on my body that are from his fury. Every once in a while I have a week like this one, I get a little upset. Like, I've been pushed as far as I'm willing to go. I'm not going to lay down and watch him kick me anymore. I remember that a holy God called me to a holy war as a holy man. He called me to that. And that the first step in resisting the devil is to submit myself then to God, not submit myself then to the TV. Not submit myself then to the Facebook. Not submit myself then to the newspaper or public opinion or what everyone else is saying. I don't know why we give so much attention to bad news other than there is a demonic power behind it. In a day's time, what do you do with the Philippians 4 scripture that says, finally, brothers, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about, in a day's time, do you spend more time consuming excellence or consuming crap? And let's just call it what it is. When you let the world tell you how to think, what to think, define you, we are losing the battle and we haven't even gotten to hand-to-hand combat yet. Here lately, our media has tried to turn brothers and sisters against each other over race issues. How pathetic. It is immature. From the second row, amen, it is immature. If we're in Christ, we're a part of the heavenly race. It shows how completely defeated the church world is. But we don't have to be saints. We don't have to be at all. Turn with me to 2 Kings 3. Let's talk about our vulnerability. Because if we can discuss with honesty, and I know we're not used to that in church. Tell me I'm blessed. Tell me I'm wonderful. Tell me I'm beautiful. Tell me I'm talented. Go ahead and pronounce me a champion and send me on my way, and I'll throw some change in your plate. That's pretty well the covenant with the church and the congregation. Not here. I would rather preach to a handful who are serious. In 2 Kings 3, we find our vulnerability. Are you there? In the third chapter and 25th verse, somebody holler out, there. We find a proclamation. 2 Kings 3, I said 25, I mean 15. 
But now bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. And he said, this is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches. For this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain. Yet this valley will be filled with water. And your cattle and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. You will cut down, I'm sorry, you will overthrow every fortified city in every major town. You will cut down every good tree. Stop up all the springs and ruin every good field with stones. We have Joram of Israel, the king of Israel. We have Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And we have a king of Edom. And all three kings are going to war against Moab. And they want to know what Elijah says. And Elijah is a man just like you and me. And he says, you know, get me a harpist, right? Probably it was shaped like a ovation guitar or maybe a tailor and he began to worship and as he worshiped he heard from the heavens and what did he do he pronounced a victory you will overthrow every fortified city somebody say every, every. if you overthrow every city how many cities are not overthrown none they're all overthrown you will cut down every Good tree, stop up all springs and ruin every good field with stones. This is a prophecy. Now, let me ask you something, Elisha. Is he a false prophet? No, he's a biblical prophet, isn't he? Among the prophets, though, I mean, he's kind of an amateur, huh? He, he really, he didn't prophesy or do very many amazing things, did he? Elijah... It's maybe the most amazing guy that had walked the earth at that time. And Elisha did twice what Elijah did. So are we talking about an amateur prophet? And if he said it, shouldn't you be able to take it to the bank? God has given us so many good and wonderful promises. Pick up with me then in the story in the 25th verse. They destroyed the towns, and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. So far, so good, huh? Every, every, every? Only Kir Harseth was left with its stones in place. But the men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it as well. So far, so good, huh? When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. Tell me God's will is always done. The prophet said you will overthrow every fortified city. How about this one? He said you will throw down every stone. How about the stones that he sacrificed his firstborn son on? So why was the will of God not done? Because rather than the Antichrist-like figure losing heart, the people of God did. But I bet they went home and declared a victory because they did most of what God told them to do. Have you begun what God called you to do? Have you even begun it? And if you've begun it, 
Where are you at in the process? Have we declared victory before you have put down the last enemy? It's in our nature to coast. It's in our nature to become apathetic. The Word of God is a certainty. You know what is not a certainty? Who will carry out that Word? Now, I'm sure that Elijah's Word came to pass, but it didn't come to pass on that day because the people of God lost heart in the face of the fury of the enemy. Saints, we need to develop a faith that acknowledges there is fury against us and smiles and grits its teeth and says, I was made for this. No more moaning. No more whining. No more woe is me, downcast Christians. If you believe that the living God has raised from the dead and His power is in you, then what does a bad day look like? Did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have a bad day when they were thrown in the furnace? Did Moses have a bad day when Pharaoh was cornering him against the Red Sea and God split it? What does a bad day look like? Saints, it's time for us to wake up and realize we're at war. We're at war. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm at war. Oh, say it again. They didn't believe you. Saints, we need to realize we are at war. And once that happens and you know how committed the enemy is, something else happens to us. You realize that this battle is largely won or lost by the intensity of the desire of the people. This is why Revelation says over and over and over, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. Turn with me to 2 Kings 13 while you're here. In 2 Kings 13, we have a king who was not perfect. We have a king who was actually a pretty bad guy. And yet, he receives a prophecy that's a good prophecy. I can relate to that. When the Lord began speaking to me, I was not a good guy. But he credited me with righteousness. 2 Kings 13, verse 17. No, why don't we say verse 14. Now Elijah was suffering from the illness from which he died. Oh, man. How many of you would like to meet Elijah? I mean, look, I'm just telling you. In Israel, when they do the Passover, they leave their front door to their house open, and they set an extra seat just in case Elijah shows up. Because it was said in the book of Malachi that Elijah would come to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, children to the fathers. There would be a restoration in Israel. Jesus said John the Baptist was Elijah, and yet Elijah is still to come. You need to read that carefully. It's an area that needs study in the church today. That was Elijah. Elisha did twice as many things as Elijah did. But we still honor the father over the son. And the reason that we do is it's a biblical principle. How many of you would like to meet a guy that called fire from the heavens, that led an Armenian army blind to his king? King says, what do I do? I kill him now? He goes, if you had captured him with your swords, would you have killed him? How much more mercy should you show since we didn't have to lift the finger? You know, the enemy's camp said, I think Elijah can hear in our bedrooms when we're speaking, you know? He knows exactly what you're going to. He was frustrating to the enemy. It's almost like he could see in the spiritual realm. 
it's almost like he knew, actually, you know he could see in the spiritual realm. What did he pray for his servant? Lord, open his eyes. Let him know what I know. See, I got this little secret that I want to proclaim, and it'll change the way you view everything. How scared do you think Gehazi was after he realized who was surrounding him? How is he not all that scared? If we could see into the spiritual realm. So anyway, we're talking about the last message that Elijah ever preached. Come on now. You know who Smith Wigglesworth is? You know who Leonard Ravenhill is? Oh, man, David Wilkerson. I mean, these, these are uh, John Wesley. How'd you like to have been there for the last message they preached? This is Elisha's very last message. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows, and he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elijah put his hands on the king's hands. A bow and arrow in the ancient world is a method of war. It's like taking a 50 caliber rifle with a scope. It was something that was a long-range weapon. And one of the things that J.J. and I would do if the Moloch household and the Stevens household were going to war is I would venture to whatever our boundary stones were. I would hold up a bow and arrow, and I'd say, Hey, Moloch, this is what you're going to get. And I'd shoot an arrow as a testimony that there's more coming, right? Because when the arrows start flying, it's no longer a negotiation, is it? <laughs> the prophet says, come here, bring me some instruments of warfare. The prophet put his hands on the king's hands. It's almost like saying, you won't have to fight this in your own strength. It'd be like my hands. He called him the chariots and horsemen of Israel in the previous verse. It'll be like my hands are on your hands. Brent, you read a scripture from 2 Chronicles, yeah, Chronicles 20 about the battle is not yours. It belongs to the Lord. Wednesday night, what a good word. He was supposed to pick up his weapons of warfare and listen to what happens then. Open the east window. <laughs> I love the Bible. There's nothing in it that's filler. Come on, say, teach me something, Pastor. He didn't open the west window. He didn't open the north window. He didn't open the south window. He opened the east window. Now, one reason is if you're standing in Samaria and you're fighting with people who are coming from Aphek, that is to the east of Samaria. So that's a great reason. But it's not the only reason. When you look at east in the Bible, you find out something. We're not going to turn to all these, but I'm going to tell you about them. Is that okay? In Genesis 3, 24, man was put outside of the garden. Do you know what side he was put on? The east side. He was put on the east side of Eden. In Genesis 4, 16, Cain went to live in the land of Nod. Do you know where Nod was? It was east of Eden. In Genesis 41, 6, there are beautiful heads of grain, and a certain kind of wind comes and scorches them to death. Do you know what direction it came from? The east. In Exodus 10, 3, a plague of locusts blows right across Egypt, decimating the most powerful nation on earth. Do you know what direction the wind was blowing to cause them to come in? East. When they crossed into the promised land, you could come from the south. It would have made all kind of sense to me to come into it from the south or the west. They didn't. They went to the east side of the Jordan 
and they crossed into the promised land moving from east to west. See, in man's history, we've been on the right road, but we've been headed the wrong direction. It's like that guy who is headed from Jerusalem to Jericho. Oh, he's on the right road. He's, he's on the road between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. The problem is he's got us back to the kingdom of God and he's headed to the kingdom of men. So God appointed a beating for him and then appointed one obedient servant. But remember how many walked by that weren't obedient and got him turned around. What's it going to take to get you turned around? I want you to understand something. East is symbolic of the direction men are traveling and it is away from God. And what's required it's not a GPS. It's not a complicated map. Whatever direction you're going, you simply turn around and walk the other way. It's called repentance. On the right road, headed the wrong way. He said, open that east window. By the way, while we're talking about east, we can preach more than one sermon at a time. Natalie, I'll talk to you and they can listen. While we're talking about east, JJ, where did the Magi come from? The east. Dustin, what did they see in the sky? They saw his star. Where did it appear? Oh, we serve a God who goes behind enemy lines and he takes those who used to be against you and he will transform them to become for you. Our God began his battle in the east in the direction that everybody had been going that was wrong because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. You want to know how to focus a church? You need to get them in the battle. Get their hands on the instruments of war and focus them at the lost. Oh, there are a lot of churches that have their hands on the instruments of war, but it's become war with each other. It's become war with every doctrinal war, war over the color of carpet, whether we do or don't have Starbucks, whether we do or don't have fermentation, whether we do or don't have facial hair, do or don't have sleeves, do or don't have permanence, whatever it might be, because those are obviously so important. I think the Spirit of God is trying to get our hands on the weapons of war and face us towards the loss out the east window. Can somebody say amen, Pastor? Yes. If we could simply get focused on the job at hand, the direction of the attack, look what happens here. Then he said, oh, no, verse 17, we don't want to skip it. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elijah said. This old man's about to die. It's his last message. And what's he saying? Go to war, son. Go to war, son. Open the window and fire. You got, a, you got an arrow. Shoot it. Oh, man. My daddy was something else. Some of you knew him, and I, I loved him. He had no patience for a basketball team that did nothing but pass the ball. He'd say, shoot the rock, son. Shoot the rock. That meant you've passed too many times. Take the shot. And if you didn't, you heard about it when you got home. It's better to miss the shot than to have never taken the shot. The old prophet still has some fire left in his bones. And he says, take the shot. Oh, that the church could hear that. Take the shot. Elijah said, and he shot. 
the Lord's arrow of victory. You might be looking at your arms, and ladies, I know how you get about your arms, right? Nobody wants to hold out your arms like this and, and do the jiggle, do you? you? You pick your shirts, all the, but, but guys are like, you know, take the shot, you know. I understand. We're just made different, you know. Ladies, forgive your husbands. You might be looking at your arms going, I can't take the shot. It was never your arrow. You are simply acting on behalf of the Lord. It is the Lord's arrow of victory. It's his victory. And if you should happen to defeat the enemy with the arrow, we don't stand up and say, look what I did. It's the fastest way to fall out the window. You say it was the Lord's arrow of victory. Look at the prophecy. Elijah declared. Say, declared is the same as prophesied. Declared. declared is the same as prophesied. And we know Elijah prophesies it is coming to pass. You will completely destroy the, Ar the Armenians at Aphek. Completely. Does that leave any room for doubt? Cody, you're going to completely pass your CHL test. Does that mean you might fail it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Let's get to verse 18. Then he said to him, take the arrows. And the king took them. Elijah told him, strike the ground. He struck the ground three times and... He struck the ground three times and... Three times and... Oh, man. These are among the last words that Elijah speaks. I bet he wished he hadn't made him mad. The man of God was angry. <clears throat> It's okay to get angry sometimes. This made the man of God angry. What makes him angry? When the king of Israel stopped. And he said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. I want you to understand this is prophetic about the church. We need to put our hands on instruments of warfare. We need to aim for the lost. We need to shoot the arrow of the Lord's victory. And then you pick up the rest of your arrows and you don't stop beating the ground until you have decimated the east Amen. and made it the kingdom of God. When we stop short, they die. See, that's what we need to get through. Look at your neighbor and say, it's not about you. It's not about you. I was never going to war for myself. Once you're saved, praise God, you're saved. Walk in your salvation. How many have not seen the light that you have seen? It's about them. What happens when the people of God stop short? As Brother Brent said, they find an easy way out. See, this is the message the church needs to hear. It's not enough to begin the battle. It's not enough to declare victory and to hold up the promise of God as victory if you will not cling to the promise of God until the deed is done. Tell me you believe God heals. And then 10 minutes after you prayed the prayer of healing, you're fearfully biting your nails and hauling your car as fast as you can get it to go to whoever the nearest witch doctor at MD Anderson is to poison your body. Spend all your money. You want to find out how dedicated you are to something? Let your life depend upon it. All of a sudden, it changes everything, doesn't it? I've noticed that the name it and claim it, or as Brent said, blab it and grab it crowd talks a big game until the guns come out. 
And then it's just not their calling, you know. Church, the word of the Lord for this congregation is pick up your bow and arrow. Pick it up. Take your shot. Put Exodus 10, 26 on the screen for me, would you? I know you thought we were done. But every once in a while I catch a second wind. Pray a third one doesn't come. Why do we stop short of the complete victory? Why does it happen? It happens because we begin to negotiate with the enemy about how, how far we're willing to go. Anybody watch the first Gulf War? It was like our first seriously televised war. I mean, you know, you could watch a cruise missile going to downtown Baghdad, take a left, stop at a stop sign, and then strike somebody's camel. <coughs> Wolf Blitzer got his bomber's jacket on, you know, and made his whole career. Good, you don't know who I'm talking about. Don't watch that news station. It's the Commode News Network. Listen, that war was something. And it was something because everybody in the world could watch it live. That was, that was new, right? Wasn't even shaped by the journalists like uh, Vietnam was, taking pictures and writing articles. You could actually see video of it. Schwarzkopf wanted to go all the way into Baghdad. He wanted to press it, man. He wanted to press it while he had it. He said, don't just liberate Kuwait. Let's go all the way in. Let's do the deed now. We stop short, and what do we have to do? Fight that battle again, and to some extent, we're fighting it around the world. So, Eric, geopolitical situations are just not my thing. What do you think the Bible prophecies are written about? But whatever. We let you just say it's not your thing. The same thing happens in the kingdom of God. When we don't complete the battle today, it is waiting out there for us, gaining strength for a later date. If you lose heart today, understand you have appeased an aggressor. You have encouraged, come on, Gabby, you got a good prophecy. Come on, Caitlin, you got a good word. You got to fight and hold to the testimony until it comes to pass. And every time you let it go, it encourages the enemy. If I can keep on keeping on, if I can push on Kevin hard enough, he'll give up. You got to have some kind of tenacity. You got to, or you never see the promises of God, no matter how good they are. You know, we used to say, pray for rain, carry an umbrella. Pray for rain, carry an umbrella. That's great. Till day three and it hadn't rained. Then what do you do? I say, you pray for rain and keep carrying the umbrella until it does. And then you dance in the rain, friends. I don't know how long victory is going to take. I simply know I won't quit until it does. In Exodus 10, 26, our lifestyle, this is great. So what we have is we have Pharaoh, and he's saying, you know, Moses, say, you know, now that we've talked about this for a while, you have persuaded me out of the generosity of my heart to let your people go. But do you think you could leave some of the livestock behind? I, I kind of like them. Look at Moses' response. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. Our attitude when facing the enemy does not mean that we will say, you know, if I can get a 75% victory, I'll be happy. If I can get every town except the one that foreign king's in, I'll be happy. If I can just get three victories instead of five or six, I'll take the three. 
This attitude that says, I'm okay with being a doorkeeper in the house of God is of the devil. Don't say it. It's devilish. You need an attitude that says, I will not quit. I won't leave one hoof behind. Come on now. If you're trying to save your favorite oxen, you might be happy to get most of the animal out. But what are you going to do with a three-hoofed oxen? Hmm? What are you going to do with a partial victory? What can you do with a three-legged horse, friends? Moses said, I won't leave a hoof behind because if I left a hoof behind, it'd be like leaving the whole animal behind. It's not okay to see somebody get most of the way in the kingdom. Oh, well, they prayed the prayer. You know, they joined Bible study group. Maybe they'll quilt me something. When they don't have a single part of them that loves the world, then we're doing something. Oh, tell me the truth. Don't tell me the truth. I'll tell you the truth. Then we can stay friends. Most of the time, we're not interested in salvation that leaves no hoof behind. We're happy if we can just get a hoof in the kingdom. If we got one hoof in and three hoofs out, we're like, well, praise God, they made a declaration of faith. Yeah, but three-quarters of them is losing the battle every day. How long do you think it'll be before they slip into hell? The gospel confronts that situation. If your household is not at war with the devil, if your church is not at war with the devil, and if you're not serving a God who's at war with the devil, friends, you still got hooves in Egypt. Put Hebrews 7.25 on the screen. We're going to start to wind down. Is that okay? Y'all had enough of me? You don't have to drive far for the food today. Hebrews 7, 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely. Not part ways. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. How many days does Jesus take off? How much of you is he willing to surrender to the enemy? None. He is able to deliver Completely. Come on, Justin, completely? We're going to settle for half of the will of God in our life, and we're going to go after it all. We're going to settle for a, a, a faith that is active two days a week. Well, we got a witness class on Friday. We'll witness on Friday. Well, what about the other six days? And you know, we have one scheduled prayer meeting in this church. Have I said this enough? One scheduled prayer meeting in this church. Just one. It's on Sunday morning, and we do not have 10% attendance. And I bet you thought this was one of the more fired-up churches you met. Well, we talk well. I'll tell you that. We talk with the champions. We, we got pretty decent doctrine. We know the right thing to do. How many times are you going to beat the arrows against the ground, saints? We have an enemy who's furious. You know what? What will settle this for us? How about we do this? The seventh book of the Bible is what? Look at y'all. Work through it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. If Ruth's the seventh book, we're in trouble, friends. You've got a different Bible. Turn with me to the seventh book of the Bible. And then when you find that seventh book, turn to the seventh chapter. And when you find the seventh chapter of the seventh book, turn to the seventh verse. Anything got three sevens in it's got to be good, right? Yeah. Nobody studying the book of Revelation with me? 
What, nobody studying the book of Revelation with me? Seventh book, seventh chapter, seventh verse has got to be good. Right, Spence? Got to be good. Say it out loud, Spence. You talk smack on a basketball court. You can do it in church. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300, goodness gracious, 300. How how, how we get 300? How we get 300? Didn't we have 32,000 that started with him? Now, I always get nervous when I have to do math in church because Fred's back there, and Fred's pretty quick with math. That's less than 1%. It's 0. 0.9375. of those who set out to do battle are actually going to do battle. Let's let's just say that 10% of the world got saved. Wouldn't that be good? I mean, it's 7 billion people. 10% is pretty good, isn't it? But what if of those 10%, we we end up only with 0.9%? Three seven five percent it'd still be enough if they were men like these men. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go each to his own place. Why lap? See, you had a choice. You could lay on your face and drink the water. You could go up to the water and say, I'm thirsty to H-E double hockey sticks with everything else. All that matters is my thirst. I've got tunnel vision, and I just want to satisfy my thirst. Sounds like an addiction, doesn't it? Weren't you addicted to sin? Are you addicted to sin? What matters most in your life? See, these guys, these guys went to battle with the Lord. They were in the army of the Lord. But on the battlefield, what they were concerned with most was themselves. So they fell down and put their faces in the water. God said, send all those people home. The ones that knelt and brought water from the ground to their mouth with their hands, keeping an eye on the battlefield concerned with what the Lord was concerned with more so than feeding their own thirst. These that drink like dogs. My weenie dog is such a pig when he drinks. He gets water all over himself, all over the floor. It always makes me mad. And then he, then he jumps in, in my bed and wipes his mouth on my sheets. <laughs> Drinking like a dog's not a compliment. Unless the only reason you're drinking like a dog is because you're more concerned with the Lord than getting water in your mouth. Then it's a huge compliment. I will be Jesus' lapdog. How about you? Are you more concerned with meeting your needs or more concerned with meeting his? Because if you look out your eastern window, he's got an awful lot left undone. I want to be Jesus' lapdog. Those are the guys that win the battle, and I think it'll be less than 1%. As we began to pray this morning, something happened that formed my message. You know, you get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and you go to bed after midnight, it doesn't always feel good. It just doesn't. I mean, I, I can't get a testimony on that. There's not an amen in the room on that. It just doesn't. 
And sometimes your flesh is not as willing as your spirit. So you drag yourself into prayer meeting. Well, I have to. I'm the pastor, right? I don't have a choice. And maybe you look around and not everybody is as excited to be there either. Well, we could just go eat a bacon temptation omelet at IHOP. I found those last week. I really like them. Sorry for our Jewish audience. I like bacon. Um, we could go just do something else, couldn't we? Except the thing is, is the devil's furious. We've made ourselves a target. And if we don't stand up and fight, he doesn't stop fighting. Beginning to wonder why so many are in injured reserve now? Why so many? It's the fourth quarter of the game and they're not standing next to you. See, while we were in the prayer meeting, the time I felt the most anointed is when the Spirit of God came over me. And he began telling me, prophesy. Prophesy to the dry bones. Prophesy that I might raise up an army. Prophesy to them. Prophesy to them that they might become the men and women they're called to be. Prophesy to them. Prophesy to them. Once I got that word, I was done. I knew what my job was. My job's not to come in here and tell you. Judah asked me one time, Dad, is this a you suck sermon or a you suck worse sermon? His feeling was that I only had two kinds. We may feel that way. But my job is to give you an honest estimation of where you actually are and then let the Spirit of God tell you, you can do better. You can go higher. There's more to have. There's more battle to fight. There's, Sequoia was born for a purpose. And it's not the purpose the world has for her. God's got a purpose for Sasha. God's got a purpose for Ray. And the enemy is furious over the purpose. The moment you hit the brick wall on the right road when you were headed the wrong direction, you turn around, your life goes to hell in a handbasket. Nobody likes you anymore. You wreck your car, you lose it. You wreck your car and wreck the next one and wreck the company one and wreck the next one. But praise God, you can wreck everything I got, but if my life is headed in the right direction, I'm no longer a wreck. It's time, church, to let the Spirit of God move in us so that we can become an army rather than just dry bones. Do you believe the devil's furious? Let us talk about the right kind of faith then. It's our last verse today. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. I got an answer for his fury. You know, we have some pretty insulting gestures in the world. It's not unheard of. While I've been talking about Jesus, praying for people, loving them, for somebody to hop right out there and tell me I'm number one with their fingers. Not been all that uncommon in my life to get the devil fisted. You're number one. Really enthusiastic. The devil is furious. I get emails every day. Some from people who love the kingdom and love what we're doing and they're supportive. And some that absolutely hate us. I couldn't even read them to you here. 
because what people say with their one-finger salute is every line. And they find the need to do it for multiple accounts, sometimes more than one country, several times a day. You know why I don't delete them? It reminds me the devil's furious, and I'm glad he's mad at me. I step on his count. I cast them out. Like Jesus, I'll see Satan fall like lightning from every area that we advance. And there's a valley in India. Not India. Next one's Peru. Get my country straight. Well, we're going to see him fall. We're going to see people saved. The Lord told me this morning to beat my arrows against the ground. And what you're hearing is a dry, dead old pastor beating his arrows against the ground while the Spirit of God brings life to these bones. I'm not always excited about 10,000 feet. But I'd go 20,000 feet to see somebody in the east get saved. Is that the job of just a few? In Hebrews 11, starting in verse 32, after having made his case, the writer of Hebrews says, And what more shall I say? To which the people said, Good, it's 1230. And what more shall I say? I do not have time, because the deacons are tapping their fingers. I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions and quenched the fury of the flames. Your faith is supposed to cancel out his fury. He can throw you in a fire, but Jesus shows up in the fire. He can strike your body down, but Jesus can raise your body up. You are the answer to the devil's fury, but we can't sit on our hands calm and quiet. Oh, the Lord will do it if he wants it done. He's called you to do it. I would say let's match his fury with the only F word worth saying, faith. Let's give him a fistful of faith. Our doctrines and steeples and stained glasses have not scared him away. But one man, one woman, who's got arrow and bow in hand and willing to beat him against the ground as many times as it take. One person submitted to God, and what does Peter say? The devil will flee from you. He will flee from you. No more whining. No more daffodil Christianity. Oh, well, God, it's not good. No, no, no. Get your arrows in your hand. Fight. If I could tell you anything, church, is don't wait for everybody else to stand and pull you out. The Bible teaches us to help each other with our loads. It does. That's Galatians 6.1. But if you read three verses later, he says each one's to carry his own load. When's the last time you brought a smile to a room? When's the last time you prophesied to dry bones? Are you a consumer Christian? Or are you a contributing Christian? Let's stand to our feet. I believe that the Holy Ghost is conscripting an army. We sing about it, and we sing about it well. 
The question is, at the end of the day, how many of you are going to finish what you started? Rebecca, how old are you? Fifteen. You're going to serve Jesus all your life? How many years are you going to take off, Rebecca? None. Ray, are you all in? Never backing up? Never shutting up or letting up? What if it costs you a hoof, Ray? See? How about you, Jorge? I was there when you got born again. I was there when you got filled with the Holy Ghost. I saw Mario Salinas lay his hands on you, and your whole countenance changed. Are you all in, Jorge? Oh, pick up your weapons of war, church. Pick them up and take a shot. If you don't do it, then instead of taunting the enemy, he's out there taunting you. You can pretend like he's not. But if you could see into the heavenly realms, we've become a laughingstock to our enemy. All the children of Israel are at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses, their leader, is gone. Moses, the great man of God, gone. What are we going to do? Pastor's not here. They became a laughingstock to the enemy, the Bible says. Any one of them had the power to put the devil himself to flight. It just took somebody to pick up their bow and arrow. Bow and arrow. You don't need a master's of divinity. You don't need to be a certified biblical counselor. You don't need anybody to understand you any better. You don't need anybody to connect with you any better. You know what you need? You need a bow and arrow in your hand. Beat it against the ground. Shoot out the east window and live a life of sacrifice is so much fun. You girls, y'all pray? You pray? You pray? You know what? Many a battle been won in prayer. There's a little lady sitting behind y'all, four or five rows, that I'm pretty confident saved my life a few times just by praying. Say, well, I don't remember doing that. Well, that's why we pray in the Holy Ghost.